Right. Can you guys hear me? Is this on? All right. Good morning, everyone. And, uh, you know, in light of just what Pastor Mark shared, it is a joy for me to be here and to bring you the Word of God today and the turn of the new year. So, Happy New Year to everyone. Um, I know it's hard to say happy, you know, in front of New Year, being all that happened this past year in 2020, but 2020 is behind us. You guys, have you guys realized that? I mean, you know, I know New Year's was a little different than what we're used to, but it is finally behind us, and now we are moving forward to 2021, a year closer to the Christ's return, right? And so, at the turn of the new year, it's hard not to think about New Year resolutions. I know not everyone does them, but I want to plant some seeds in your mind about making resolutions for your life, you know, making changes in your life. And I want to start off by just saying, um, just bringing up, you know, Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the most influential preacher and theologian in the 1700s, understood that making resolutions was an important part of growing in the faith. At the age of 19, he was at Yale while doing a brief stint as a pastor of a Presbyterian church in New York City. And he's only there for a few months, and he starts looking ahead to what he wants to do with his life. He starts thinking about the future. So he wrote resolutions, 70 of them. All of them that ended up getting published, so you can actually purchase it and read it for yourself. But he reminds the future generation of all Christians that resolutions can be a powerful thing if done with the right perspective. He prefaced his resolutions with these words in his book. And I quote, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. So far, they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. End quote. He knew that the only way he'd be able to keep any resolutions was with God's help. His first resolution actually reads, Resolve to do whatever I think to be my own good, profit, and pleasure. And thus, he begins the start of his famous 70 resolutions. Because resolutions are powerful because it starts with the mindset of repentance and change. It is to reconcile somehow the greatness of God with the gracious opportunity to live the only life that God has given you. It is the realization that there is such thing as wasting your life and wasting your opportunities of the gospel. But again, doing anything for God starts with humility. I want to plant that seed in your minds that resolutions are a good thing if done with the right perspective. And today, I want the Word of God to provide that right perspective to us. So let's pray. We're going to ask the Lord to help us. Heavenly Father, as I come before your church to bring your Word, let us come with humble attitudes. Let us come with dependence on the Spirit. Help me to bring your word clearly and accurately. Let your words drive the church, build your church, continue to grow your church. We trust in you, Lord, because you are the one who built your church from the very beginning and are doing so today. So we thank you for another new year, but let us be convicted that we don't let this year pass by without any growth in our faith in Christ. Let us continue to grow. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 7 to 10, our main passage for this morning. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 10. And Pastor Mark has done multiple sermons on Timothy 
being a good servant, right? And what does it mean to be a good servant? It's to be a faithful servant of the gospel. Faithful servant in sound doctrine, right? And so we're going to start this morning at verse 7. And Paul's going to continue that thought. And he, and he wrote, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, you're going to see three ways to train to win the battle for true godliness in his church. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10, you're going to see three ways to train to win the battle for true godliness in his church. And those three things are, the Christian must train to avoid hidden truths. The Christian must train to apply revealed truth. And the third thing would be the Christian must train in anticipation of the living truth. But before we dive into our main passage, I want to start off by asking the bigger question here on what is godliness? What is godliness? What is the goal of the training? The answer is wrapped up in a word that Paul uses in verse 7. And that word is godliness. Christians are to train for godliness. The word godliness is not a word that we use very often today. I mean, we like to use the word godly. We say a man or a woman is godly, you know, because they're spiritual, spiritually mature and they're walking right with the Lord. But godliness is not a word that we use very often, is it? For the Greeks, the Greek word here, Eusebius, referred to religious piety. But Paul uses the word with something deeper in mind here. To Paul, it was critical that Timothy got godliness right. There's a sense of urgency within the tone of the letter. What's that urgency? Well, Paul is released from his first imprisonment. Remember the end of book of Acts was that Paul was on his way to Rome to defend himself, right? And so he was under house of arrest and after two years he was released. And so 1 Timothy is found right after that first release. And we find Timothy is in Ephesus. And Paul is in Macedonia. Macedonia is where the church of Philippi and Thessalonica was. And there are false teachers everywhere. Men who are not praying. Women who are exerting authority. Widows who are being neglected. And then spiritual leaders who are trying to get rich off of the gospel. And to Paul, it comes down to something that he calls godliness. It's all wrapped up in this word, godliness. Timothy needed to get godliness right because the natural tendency of the church in Ephesus was to get godliness wrong. If Jesus is the narrow gate, godliness is the narrow path to our destination. If Jesus is the vine... Godliness ensures that we as branches abide in him. If Jesus is the bread of life, then godliness is the result of that life. If Jesus is the light of the world, then in that illumination, the Christian would see what godliness looks like. So Timothy needed to get godliness right. And to demonstrate that Paul uses the word godliness with a deeper meaning, I want to just point out five observations for our introduction before we get into those three main points. The first observation is that 
In the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul is not shy about godliness being linked to salvation. Godliness is linked to salvation. Jump down in the same chapter to verse 16. Paul writes a warning to Timothy saying, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both just him? No. Both yourself and your hearers. This is about salvation. This is about going in the right direction to our destination. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, By rejecting true godliness, some have made shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he even talks about women and somehow linking childbearing with salvation. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, elders who are too young in their faith can become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In chapter 4, verse 1, when he talks about apostasy, some will depart from the faith. In chapter 5, verse 15, young widows who don't marry again fall into lust and have already strayed after Satan. In chapter 6, verse 10, the last chapter, the love of money causes some to wander away from the faith. None of Paul's letters mention these types of warning with such frequency as 1 Timothy. This is the same Paul who wrote Galatians and Romans. He believes in salvation by faith. He believes in salvation in Christ alone. This is the same Paul who wrote those letters. And yet, all of those consequences are directly connected with what? Getting godliness right. So that's the first observation. That godliness is a matter of spiritual life and death. Here's a second observation. The word godliness, the Greek word godliness, it's only used 15 times in the New Testament. And out of those 15 times, only one of those times is in the book of Acts. And the other 14 times are found in the later what we call pastoral epistles and the last letter of, of, of Peter, which is Second Peter. And out of all those pastoral epistles, guess which epistle that word happens to show up the most? Eight times in the letter of First Timothy. First Timothy. Godliness is the major theme in First Timothy. Because clarity comes from seeing that Paul's concern is about getting godliness right because the church of Ephesus is getting godliness wrong. The third observation is that godliness got harder as the church got older. Godliness got harder as the church got older. The word godliness only appears in these epistles between the years 60 and 70 AD. And 70 AD is when the temple gets destroyed and the Christians get scattered. Why only those years? Because by then, it's 30 years past Christ's ascension, and the churches are getting older. No longer is it about just the simple theological matters that the false teachers are getting wrong. Now, the false teaching has got into the minds of the church, veering off in a course that they think is right, but is completely wrong. And the older the church the more it exposes the weakest parts of the foundation of the church. And the only analogy I can give you on that is, have you gone bowling before? We've all gone bowling. No one is good at bowling, but we all go bowling, right? And no matter what angle you start with, you think it's straight, and it starts veering off to the left. You think it's straight. Well, some of you might be good at it, but for me, I think it's straight, and it starts veering off to the right. Because the angle of magnitude of error is, is minute, Compared to your destination. And the bigger example of that is sending a rocket from Earth to the moon. Scientists have to calculate the exact angle to point and the timing to hit the moon, right? I mean, even if you're just a millisecond off, even at 0.1 degrees off, you're thousands of miles off. 
And this is exactly what we're talking about. That initially when you start a church, it seems like you're all going in the right direction. And then as time goes on, you're going to find out where you end up. So godliness got harder as the church got older. Observation number four. Godliness got harder because of distortion from false teachers. Godliness got harder because of distortion from false teachers. And let me ask you this. This section is very interesting when I was doing this study. And I just want to share this with you guys. If I asked you which church in the Bible experienced the most extraordinary miracles, not the most number of miracles, but which church in the Bible experienced the most extraordinary signs and wonders, miracles, all that amazing supernatural stuff, which would you say? Spend about five seconds thinking about that. I'm going to think that some of you thought maybe the Corinthian church, right? Because it talks about tongues, it's talking about all this stuff, right? But the Bible tells us it's actually the church of Ephesus. It's the church of Ephesus. If you read Acts chapter 19, that whole chapter is about one miracle after another while Paul was in Ephesus. The first, Paul meets a bunch of disciples from John the Baptist... They never heard of the Holy Spirit. So Paul lays his hands on them and they start speaking what? In tongues. And then there was a physical fight between a demon-possessed man and the seven sons of a Jewish high priest who tried to cast out the demon like Paul would. And the demon mocked them and beat them up. So the sons scattered and ran away. And that story started spreading all over the place. But then here's the verse that tells us that it's actually the most extraordinary miracles because it's the only place in the book of Acts that is described as extraordinary miracles. Acts chapter 19 verse 11. It says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin. Were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That's how extraordinary it was. And that level of extraordinary miracles freaked out sorcerers, mythologists, false teachers so much that in verse 19, those who practiced it brought all their magic books in front of the church and burned all of them. And it says those magic books were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And of course, you know, I couldn't help myself. I googled, what's 50,000 pieces silver worth? And if it was denarii, it's worth $5 million in today's money. If it was talents, it's worth over a billion dollars. It doesn't tell us if it's talents or denarii, we don't know. But that's still a lot of money, right? That's how convincing the miracles were. All the false teaching got destroyed... By God's work, God's supernatural work. And it reminds me of what God did with Elijah and and the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. Fire came down from heaven. It was a big match between the false and the righteous. And God basically said, I'm the true God. And guess what happened to the prophets of Baal? They got slaughtered. End of story, battle over, God wins, right? That's how easy it is for God to destroy false teaching. In 1 Timothy, it's more than 10 years later, no more mention of miracles. But more importantly, no mention or command to Timothy, go, go out and destroy a bunch of myth and false teachers. No, heresy is here to stay. Heresy is here to stay in the church age, outside the church. You can't do anything about it because that's how God designed it. That's the observation you need to make. That God is going to allow false teachers to just roam around outside the church. And they're just going to say whatever you say. And you can't do anything about it outside the church. But you can do something about it inside the church. Inside the church is where heresy gets addressed. Inside the church is where the battle is to keep heresy out. But outside the church, that's by God's design. You're not going to be able to destroy that. So don't waste energy trying to eliminate it outside the church. Work hard at eliminating it inside the church. So instead, Paul commands Timothy to what? 
avoid myths, which is in the Greek can be translated reject myths. It's the same Greek word that you find in Titus 3.10 to reject a factitious man, a divisive man. It's the same word, reject, avoid. Don't let it in the church. It's the same, it's, it's basically telling us, right, that the church should not allow myths to come into the church. And so train yourself. And then the fifth observation, godliness can only be right when driven by the word of God. And this is pretty much the bulk and the foundational thought behind what Paul is trying to teach Timothy here. And I want to tell you how remarkable this is. Paul's, Paul, who is Timothy's mentor by this time for at least 14 to 15 years, tells Timothy, his disciple of about 14 to 15 years. Because according to tradition, Timothy was picked up from Lystra when Timothy was about 16 years old. And so, you know, people kind of estimate that maybe Timothy's about 30 years old by now. That's about 14 years. 14, 15 years, right? That's a long time to be with the Apostle Paul. And this is sort of the puzzling thing about 1 Timothy. Wasn't Paul training Timothy the whole time? What were they doing? I mean, this is not the first time Timothy was at church. I mean, Paul wrote 13 epistles. And besides 1 and 2 Timothy, only three of those epistles have no mention of Timothy. There are six letters that Paul wrote that has Timothy in the greeting of the letters. In Romans 16.21, Timothy greets the Roman house churches. In 1 Corinthians 16.10, when Timothy comes, he says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. I mean, the book of 1 Corinthians has 16 chapters of one correction after another. And you kind of get the sense that Paul, it was Timothy who came back to Paul and gave that report to Paul, where Paul wrote the letters, and maybe Timothy was the one who gave it back to him. I don't know. We don't know who delivered the letter. I mean, this isn't, this isn't like Timothy's first rodeo, is what I'm saying. This is, he's been doing this, right? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. I mean, Timothy's going back and forth of Thessalonica, Thessalonica the Paul. And then, of course, our scripture reading for today in Philippians 2.19. Paul hopes that he can send Timothy soon because there's no one like him. There's no one that he trusts more at that point than Timothy. I mean, clearly Timothy was Paul's apostolic ministry assistant, is probably the best term to use, for at least 14 years. So you would think Paul would say something more like, hey, you got this. You're ready for this. Remember all those things I taught you. I trained you. Nope. No mention of any past training. Timothy is just charged to train himself For the purpose of godliness. Why is that? And I think it's clear that there's some type of transition going on. In the churches from the apostolic age. With frequent miracles. And supernatural occurrences. That got people so excited. Just like when Jesus was doing miracles. And people were just following him around in crowds. The churches were filled with people. Who were enamored with miracles. And that's now changing because miracles are becoming less frequent. And the church became more subdued. And God was working more providentially rather than supernaturally. But more importantly, it meant that there's a window that's closing on divine revelation. 
It hasn't closed completely yet. But Paul is seeing, and even Peter, in 2 Peter, says a lot of similar things. They're seeing that their time is short. Remember, they got both executed around the same time. Before the temple got destroyed in 70 80. And they're seeing the same problem. They're mentioning things like godliness. They're mentioning things like myths. That's Peter and Paul. And then Nero executed them, right? So they know their time is short. They know that divine revelation is not going to keep on going. Apostles are going to be killed off at some point. Or die, like John did. Just natural death. So Timothy needs to train. Not just Timothy. Christians need to train. The church has to be in a, in a mentality of a training, an exercise. Because you know who didn't need training? Does everybody in the Bible need training that God used? Did Moses need training when God chose him? Was there ever a command to Moses, train for about a month and come back to me? Never. Because he was a prophet of the Lord. What about Joshua? When Joshua was charged to win battles and he had to go to Jericho, did he need training and training and training and training? Train for about a year, get your men ready, and then go to Jericho, and then you'll win. Never. Why? Because God defeated his enemies in a supernatural way. What about Gideon? That's another great story. He had thousands of men at his fingertips, and God goes, no, you have too many. Have them go down to the river. Let's get down to a couple hundred, a few hundred men. Then you'll beat the thousands of enemies. How could he do that? Because it was supernatural. But in the post-apostolic church, it's going to end. That type of thinking is not what Paul is encouraging Timothy to have. You're going to have to train. You're going to have to exercise. You're going to have to understand how to use scripture. And it's going to be work. I mean, the years of silence in Scripture, it's not unheard of. I mean, there was 400 years of silence before Christ was born. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, right before God called Samuel, it does say that in those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there was no frequent visions. See, you would think that all these miracles were always just constantly happening in the Old Testament. That's just not true. There were pockets and even hundreds of years when things were just subdued and God was just working providentially. The book of Esther, no mention of God, no mention of miracles. God saves the Jewish people. That was a providential book. The book of Ruth, no direct mention of any supernatural occurrence, yet God somehow harmoniously guides Ruth and Boaz to get married being the great-great-grandparents of David, right? Amazing. And that's how the church is going to operate here. So, Paul tells Timothy to train. And remember, Paul knew a thing or two about training, by the way, because what? He came out of what? Phariseeism. You know who trained the hardest during those times before Christ appeared? Pharisees. They memorized the book of the Torah. They knew portions of scripture better than anybody. But Paul doesn't even point to himself. He doesn't even say, train like I did. No, train yourself, Timothy. Train literally means to exercise. The Greek word is where we get the English word gymnasium, gymnastics. It really means to go physically exercise. But that's why he qualifies himself that he's not talking about physical exercise here. Because bodily exercise has only physical benefits. But it won't add to godliness. Bodily exercise is popular. It's fun to talk about. And I'll admit, yes, we bought an exercise bike. Okay? Just recently. So, you know, I'm not saying bodily exercise isn't wrong. But it is a sad state of affairs in the church when physical exercise draws more excitement than conversations in the Word of God. Hey, how how often do you work out? How often do you do this exercise? Are you running? Are you doing this? Oh, why, why aren't we talking about, hey, what's, what Bible passages are you reading? How often have you been reading? You know, what's your plan? What's your reading plan? Things are so backwards in the church sometimes. 
Because the church is about spiritual training for the present time and the next life to come. So what is godliness? Alright, the five observations. At the end of all that, let me define it to you in more simple terms. That ultimately, the way Paul is using the word godliness, that godliness is scripture-driven worship in the church. It's scripture-driven worship. For you individually as the believer, and as a congregation of the whole church. Timothy found himself in Ephesus years after Paul gathered the elders of the church in Miletus in Acts 20. And that's when Paul warned the elders that one day wolves are going to come among you. And they're going to be ravenous wolves and they're going to be false teachers and destroy you guys. Remember that? And this is now years later. And what happened? False teachers within the church rising. And then Timothy is now dealing with all these problems. False teachers. There's men complaining who are rather spending time and energy trying to plot against the government. Instead of praying for their salvation. Women who want to be teachers. And then ultimately you get the sense that the elders were too passive to do anything about it. That, it really, that Timothy really had to go in and make some changes. Because the elders weren't really exercising discernment. In the church. So Ephesus church had committed members. I mean they were meeting weekly. But they missed the mark when it came to godliness. Which meant it had a worship problem. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4 verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers. You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained... In the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. In 1 Timothy 4.11, Paul says again, command and teach these things. In chapter 4 verse 15, Paul says again, practice these things. And then he goes on to say, immerse yourself in them. So that all may see your progress. Timothy, I want you to train so effectively that it's observable to others in your congregation that you're making spiritual progress. Your training should cause you to stand out in the congregation all for the glory of Christ. You can play church in an intuitive, you know, what feels right sort of way. Or you can let scripture drive everything you do. And that is what Paul is trying to get Timothy to understand. Notice in in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1, the very first verse of the letter, that Paul starts off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. That even though Paul affectionately calls him my spiritual son and all this stuff, oh, there's no mistaking that this is coming from the authority of Christ. Don't get this wrong, Timothy. Don't get this wrong. Maybe Timothy was so used to being an assistant of Paul that he simply reported back to Paul what was happening in Ephesus. Paul, this church you left me at, it's kind of messed up. I mean, the women and men are backwards. There's, there's some weird stuff being taught from the pulpit. And you kind of get the sense that, well, you know, Paul knew that he, there could be a chance he could not even come back. So you go tell the false teachers to stop teaching. You tell the men that they need to pray. You tell the women that it's against scripture to be pastors in the church. You tell them that. Maybe Timothy wasn't used to that. Maybe he was still counting on Paul to come back and do that stuff. But we find Timothy exactly in the same boat as every Christian who has lived since. That we have what we need in our faith in the gospel. We have what we need in the spirit. And we have what we need in the scriptures to what? To train yourself. Are you training yourself for the purpose of godliness? Are you training yourself in the words of faith? Are you training yourself in sound doctrine? If not, 
then what is the purpose of you coming to church? So those chapters that are describing to Timothy how important it is to have Scripture drive everything, it's incredibly critical to get godliness right. And you get the sense that Paul's even using Scripture in the letters to teach him that. It's amazing that Paul actually quotes other Scriptures in this letter more than any of his other epistles. In Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, he says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Well, the ox and grain reference, that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. But the phrase, a laborer deserves his wages, is surprisingly found in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, which is a New Testament scripture. And notice in 1 Timothy 5, 18, Paul begins with the words, Scripture says. Making the quote from Luke equal to Scripture. And so, Paul's writing these things to Timothy, right? He's encouraging them. He's encouraging him to train for the purpose of godliness. But godliness is not just simply doing better as a Christian. It is a critical path for the church. It is a critical path for the church to give worship that's acceptable to the Lord. If there was anyone that did not need training, it might have been Timothy. Discipled by Apostle Paul, he carried around the very letters of scripture that Paul wrote. He interacted with people in various churches. He had experience. But even someone as mature and experienced as Timothy needed training. And if someone like Timothy needs training, you can bet that you need training too. That you need training too. The late uh, John Stott, theologian in England, you know, passed away not too long ago. He had this to say about this passage. And I quote, How then are we to exercise ourselves unto godliness? What spiritual gymnastics are we to undertake? Paul does not go into detail, but the context and in particular, the parallel between nourishment and exercise together suggests that we are to exercise ourselves in the same way that we nourish ourselves, namely in the word of God. Certainly it has been a long-standing Christian tradition belonging to the wisdom of the ages, that disciplined meditation in Scripture is indispensable to Christian health and indeed to growth in godliness. For in contrast to godless myths, Scripture is the most godly book that has ever been written. It is a book by God about God. It might even be termed the autobiography of God, since in it he talks to us about himself. Consequently, we cannot become familiar with this godly book without becoming godly ourselves. Nothing evokes the worship of God like the word of God. End quote. You take scripture out of the church, you end up with myth and fables and fantasy. Therefore, godliness is scripture-driven worship for the believer and for the church. Or better yet, Paul says, wage the good warfare, doesn't he? In chapter 1, verse 18, that this is a battle. This is a battle. And being in the church is to be engaged in this battle for true godliness that Satan continues to try to distort. So, with that said, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 to 10, you're going to see three ways to train to win the battle For true godliness in the church. And here's the first one. The Christian must train to avoid hidden truths. The Christian must train to avoid hidden truths. And the word that is used here is myths or fables. And I want to divide the meaning into three ways. There's secular myth. There's religious myth. And then there's even Christian myth. There's secular myth, religious myth, 
and there's Christian myth. Secular myth, what is that? Well, we watch the shows like Mythbuster, don't we? Secular myth is believing in something and perpetuating something that isn't true, but it's, it's just in the interesting facts category. It doesn't really have any deep religious implications. So I went, you know, on the website on Mythbusters. I mean, here are some of the silly things that they go out and try to, to try to debunk. A household vacuum cleaner can lift a car. A hovercraft can be used to cross a minefield safely. Myth or fact, right? The tip of a whip breaks the sound barrier when it cracks. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. A piano dropped on a house will not easily fall through the roof. I wouldn't want that in my house. And a ping pong ball can be shot a supersonic speed, but it still won't be a lethal weapon. They debunk these things. This is just secular myth. And this is the word how people use myth quite often when it's just talking about interesting facts. But Paul's not talking about secular myth. He's talking about religious myth. And the aim of religious myth is way more sinister than just interesting facts. Religious myths use stories to try to explain what's happening behind what they call the veil of reality. It's a term they use of the unseen, the hidden stuff. It's truth that they try to explain what is happening in life on a regular basis using stories. And a lot of these stories will kind of explain, hey, why is it that you lose your keys? Well, maybe, maybe an angel is upset at you and he hid your keys. You know, that's kind of a weird superstitious myth. It's a way to view reality and through a lens of a fable or some made-up imagination. But religious, religious myths, they promise, they, some, they promise some type of hidden entryway to a higher level of existence. Gnosticism, Jewish myth, Greek and Roman mythology... And then general superstitions fell into this category. I mean, the God of Baal in the Old Testament. You guys, you know, we all think that there's just some sort of idol. Well, the God of Baal was the God of thunder. So, Israel being an agrarian society, they fell susceptible to have to do rituals for the God of Baal to bring down rain so there won't be famine. And so, the God of Baal kept coming back into these lives. But perhaps out of all of these, I mean, there's endless stories of myths. We're not going to go through all that. And Paul doesn't even mention a lot of these specifically. But I just want to give you a little bit of the scariest type of myth during that time. The one that was infiltrating the church. The one that Paul does mention specifically is Jewish myth. It's Jewish myth. And the Jewish myth was an underground movement that would be on the Torah and the Old Testament and got to discussing things like energy of life. The levels of spiritual growth. Things about the nature of God that scripture never mentions. And particularly there were a lot of them twisting two biggest categories that were the most often touched by mythologists. Were the Genesis account. And there's a lot of superstitions about childbirth. You'll find a lot of those two categories. There was a lot of fear about childbirth back then, and women were constantly trying to figure out ways to stay alive during childbirth. You know, statistically, what, today in the modern world, 15 in 100,000 are said to die in childbirth. That's really low compared to back in the 1600s, 600 in 100,000. It's probably a little worse in biblical times. It's interesting and also in 1 Timothy 4.7 where we see the word myth that in the NASB it's translated old wives tales. Old wives tales. And a lot of those old wives tales probably had something to do with superstition about childbirth. But what do these myths do? It gives misguided fear. It makes someone feel so afraid that if they don't do a ritual that they might offend some god and then something terrible is going to happen to you. I mean, to be clear, none of these myths are explicitly stated in the Bible. But you can just find them, you know, just endless, endless stories. And it's just a waste of time. Because the way Paul addresses all this is through Scripture. It doesn't matter what myth you're struggling with. You just teach Scripture. And that's what Paul is trying to teach. 
Timothy is that don't worry about understanding myths or trying to have a lot of conversations with people about this myth and that myth and this myth and that myth. You don't have to waste your time. Avoid the myths. What? Train for godliness, right? But then here's the third type of myth, Christian myth. Christian myth. And of course, this is the biggest danger to the church today. You know, it's a mix of secular thinking sometimes with some Christian truths. It's the type of thinking that sounds right and true, but scripture never teaches it. You know, what about the myth of believing in yourself? You guys heard about that one? Believe in yourself and then you can accomplish it. Be confident in yourself. How about the myth that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy? And if you're not, you know, he's punishing you. How about the myth that doing your quiet times guarantees you'll have a problem-free day? You guys ever fall for that one? Or the myth that you can convince someone into believing the gospel? How often do some people feel guilty because someone rejected the gospel? That's a myth. What about the power of fasting? Some people, there's books, so many books about prayer and fasting to give you some higher level of spiritual experience. That's a myth. Or the myth of let go and let God. Or the myth of that being a member of a local church is an optional thing for a Christian. Or the myth that free grace means that you can sin as much as you like with no eternal consequences. Or the myth that Holy Spirit is more about experience rather than the truth of Scripture. I mean, this stuff is permeating all over the place, right? Even as I said some of those things, you probably felt a twinge of discomfort. Like, ah, it feels right. I mean, I know people who believe that, right? It's just permeated in the churches. And sometimes Christian myth is simply that white space in your Bible. You got the black ink in your Bible that we should be reading, but it's that white space in the Bible that we get all excited about. What could this be? What could this mean? What, what does God really want to say here? That's the hidden truths, not the revealed stuff, right? I mean, how many wise men were there anyways? There's always three. The Bible never says that. What about purgatory? Does the Bible ever talk about purgatory? No. And that's taught in the Catholic Church. Or trying to speculate who wrote the book of Hebrews when God clearly didn't reveal that. This stuff goes on and on and on. This is the exciting stuff. This is the tick, ear-tickling stuff. Why isn't Pastor Mark, Peter, and Ted talking about this stuff more, right? This is the stuff that would bring people in the church. Hey, I know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Come on, I'll tell you. It's scary stuff, guys. That's certainly the kind of stuff that will lead the church astray. Paul even said that this was his primary ministry in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. That we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. How does myth get destroyed in the church? It's through scripture. It's through scripture. And Satan's strategy is basically to flood the world with false lies and stories and entertainment and things that will get you excited and things that will get you distracted. Endless, endless things. Now you have your phone and Satan can use that. And all that to what? Take away time to your training in godliness. I mean, that's, that's the way to view your time. Your time is the most precious and valuable thing that you have. And if Satan can just have you waste your life, he doesn't have to get you to believe in him, then he's happy, right? So we need to train ourselves to discern between hidden truths, things that aren't true, that seems like it's true, right? And here's the next point. The Christian must train to apply revealed truth. The Christian must train to apply revealed truth. And the next, next portion of scripture basically says, Rather train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive. Why am I saying 
What does revealed truth have to do with that, right? Because Paul is saying this within a bigger context. And that bigger context is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. That when we talk about what scripture is and what truth of God really is, we're talking about things that God has revealed to us for us to know. That he deliberately gave to us the truth. We didn't find it. We didn't discover it without his knowing. But God gives us the truth. And in 1 Timothy 3.16, there's a passage here that it's a little bit hard to understand maybe precisely what Paul was saying this for. But once you understand it, it actually cleared up a whole lot about what godliness is and what Paul is trying to do here. And it reads that in 1 Timothy 3.16, after talking about the elder qualification and deacon qualification, he just jumps into this passage all of a sudden, and he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of what? Godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up in glory. Why does Paul mention this all of a sudden? And why does he say it exactly in these ways? Because his point, the difference between God's truth and myth, is that we're basing it on something that historically actually happened. That this is an actual occurrence that happened in human history. Not some pie-in-the-sky theories about stuff that has no grounding or anchoring to human history. He was manifested in the flesh. Jesus was revealed in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was revealed by miracles, seen by angels. And the word angels can also mean human messengers, not just spiritual ones. And the word angel here probably is better translated the human ones. That he was witnessed by apostles and his disciples, people that actually walked with him. Proclaimed among the nations, evangelized to the nations. That actually happened. Believed on in the world. He was believed and then validated in the world before what? Being taken up out of it. Before taken up out of it. He was here just about enough time for, to have witnesses that the Lord will use to spread the gospel. But he had eyewitnesses. It was a historical account. It really happened. And thus all true godliness is based on the person of Christ. And the true gospel. It is on the historical basis of Christ's life, death, and resurrection and his ascension that all scripture is based on. Speculation is about things that God hasn't revealed. Theories. No historical accounts. Nothing that God truly revealed. You can talk endlessly about that. But the truth that we should be banking on are the things that God revealed to us and that we can be confident about. So Paul's saying, why speculate when God has revealed to us so much? We have the scriptures. And the tragic scenario in 1 Timothy, it presents the tendency of people to continually meet at church on a weekly basis, but do nothing because of what scripture actually says. You can intuitively live the Christian life and never stand on scripture. And it is within the sinful nature of man to elevate our own opinions and start pointing out what's wrong with the church. Hey, this needs to sound better. That needs to look better. The food needs to taste better. The color on the chairs, the color on the carpet, the way the slides are presented. Why are those different colors today? You know, the song choices, the way we're singing. You should serve more, read more, pray more, evangelize more. All human opinions, if it doesn't have prescription in Scripture. And yet, often that is what drives the church. And that is exactly what Timothy is up against. He has to stand up to the ideas based on what feels right, what seems right, what seems practical, what seems sensible. And I remember hearing, I mean, there's a pastor, John Barrett, 
you know, he has these videos online. And, and uh, I just heard him say once that when he was a young man, he wanted to become a pastor. And the person discipling him said, if you're serious about being a pastor, if you want to teach this book, if you want to teach the Bible, then you better have read the Bible a hundred times. The whole Bible a hundred times. <laughs> he initially was like, that's... No, one could, no one's going to have time to read the Bible a hundred times. But then he did his research. He found out that it only takes 70 hours and 40 minutes to read the whole Bible out loud without stopping. So, if you start dividing things up, just six minutes a day will get you through the whole Bible in two years. Twelve minutes a day, you can finish the Bible in one year. About 24 minutes a day, six months. 48 minutes a day in three months. And if you just spent about two and a half hours a day in your Bible, you can finish the whole Bible in one month. <laughs> two and a half Bibles. Who are, I mean, two and a half hours, who has time for that? Really? Apparently, we have a lot of time. According to the Nielsen Report, the United States adults are watching five hours and four minutes of television a day. And, and you know what? Your generation, okay? Which is, I guess I can say it's my generation too. Our generation, all right? We watch more videos than any previous generation ever because of the internet. YouTube, I mean, just scrolling through LinkedIn, Facebook, videos, endless videos. What? It's all over the place. Sorry, I had my one-year Bible reading plan. I... Didn't have time this year. I mean, it's convicting, right? We have time. And don't act like God's going to magically just change you with your laziness. No, God's going to work in me. I'm going to watch some TV. Well, that kind of goes against the call to training, doesn't it? God's going to providentially work through our intention to train in the Bible. The training itself is not what changes us. It's God who changes us. But God will use our intention to train and to work hard, and God will bless us because it's out of obedience to Him. You guys get it? We're not saying the training itself is all that necessary. It's only necessary because God wants it to be. So don't deny it. We have time. You just have to make some time. And John Barnett, he read the whole Bible every month until he got to 100 times. It's possible. Just two and a half hours a day. What are you spending your life with? Use your time to bank on revealed truth and not get caught up in myths and fables. And here's the third point. This is the most important one. The Christian must train in anticipation of the living truth. The Christian must train in anticipation of the living truth. Because Paul says to this, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, you might say, well, this sounded like a performance-based sermon. Here's another sermon to make us feel guilty so that we'll try harder again. Nothing could be further from the truth. You train so that your godly life can serve as a useful instrument in God's hands to cultivate true worship in your personal life and in the church. You don't do it to earn God's love. There's no way to earn God's love. We are sinful and that's it. It's only through God's mercy that he loves us. You don't do it so others in the church will be impressed by you. That's not the reason we do it. Training is for usefulness to God. All because Christ will return one day. All because you will stand before him one day. All because he will have something to say about the way you worshipped him before he unveils himself to you. 
Our hope is set on Christ. And the biggest battle, we're talking about battles against hidden truth. We're talking about battles for revealed truth. But the biggest battle, Christ has already won. It's already won. This battle of sin, it's already been, there's a victory waiting for Christ to just redeem. The greatest battle is already won. And when he returns, he will reward his good servants. He knows the sacrifices. He knows the suffering. He knows every good service and work you do according to godliness. That is why the fight is so worth it. And because we hope in Christ. There is no lost battle in anything that I mentioned that will change the future victory. This is not high stakes of eternal stakes of God's kingdom. This is just high stakes in regards to your eternity. Christ is going to win with you or without you. But if you're in Christ, you win with him. Right? There are so many similarities in the book of Titus, in the book of Second Peter, that if you want to go back, you should read it. But I'm not going to go through that for lack of time. But I just want to read this portion of Titus. Because it's possible that the letter of Titus and First Timothy was written. I wouldn't be surprised if they were written on the same day. That Paul wrote one letter after the other in the same day. But I don't know that. But they're so similar. And I want to just read this portion in Titus chapter 2. That will just eloquently say everything I just said much better. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then what? What's the word? Training us. What's training us? It's the grace of God. It's the gospel living in you that trains you. It's the gospel living in you that drives you to be trained. It's not performance-based. Don't think that. This is the grace of God driving you to want to honor him and love him. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I don't care what accomplishments you think you've done as a Christian. It doesn't matter to me. It shouldn't matter to you. It was all by the grace of God. I don't care what you think you can bring to the church. I don't care how well you can play the piano or the guitar. I don't care how well you can teach. I don't care all that stuff. Because it's not for me. He's building us up for himself. That's why we train. That's why we train. And even though it can feel like hard work, even though... There's some nights you might sleep at three in the morning, four in the morning, doing something for the Lord that no one will know. Maybe you were kept up at night because you were concerned for someone's spiritual welfare and no one knew except for God. Maybe there was something that someone in the church forgot to do and it caused some pain in your life and that you had to be the one to do to carry that burden. It's okay. Because the Lord will know. Because it's his grace that's training us for a greater purpose. 
It's the same grace that saved us from our sins that sanctifies us and works in us. So you see, making resolutions can be a powerful thing when you have the right perspective. And I hope that maybe some of you, I hope all of you, make some 2021 resolutions in your life that's more than just losing a few pounds or exercising here and there. Okay? Not to say all that's bad. Paul even said there's some benefit, right? But that's all you get. You just get that benefit in this life. I hope for something more for you guys. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so clear. And your word can powerfully work in us. And we are so just faithless at times. We get lost so easily. Left to ourselves, we will destroy ourselves. We will destroy your church. But thank you for your word. Thank you for the apostles and the men that were faithful to write these down. Thank for, thankful for all the spiritual leaders in church history that passed down the truth and preserved the truth. Let us fight and engage in that battle in our church to engage in true godliness so that we can stand without shame the day of our Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen.